Episode 10 of the podcast is with first team SNC and sports science at Exeter City, Andy Wiseman. Andy talks about his previous roles as well as his approach to recovery with his players. He also talks about how his coaching style and how he deals with players has progressed throughout his career. The blog article that we've referred to in the episode will be included in the show notes. Enjoy the episode with Andy. Welcome to episode 10 of the Football Fitness Federation podcast. I'm joined today by Andy Wiseman. Andy is the first team strength conditioning and sports scientist at Exeter City. Andy, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks, Ben. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you, mate. Thanks a lot for coming on. Um, you're definitely someone that's been towards the top of the list in terms of guests that we wanted to get on, so I really appreciate you giving up your time and... Uh, coming on today to share your experiences and that my pleasure my pleasure Ben I don't know if that's a good thing being top of the list but <laughs> <laughs> just fill us in Andy for anyone that doesn't know just take, take us through your background and, and where you're at now what your role includes yeah so um, I had a sort of mini playing career which didn't go too well uh, picked up a lot of injuries um Ended up going over playing in Ireland and then took up coaching around about 2006. Um, sort of went through the process over there, returned to the UK in 2010. Uh, when I was in Ireland, I actually started a degree at Manchester Met uh, through the PFA. Uh, shame, you know, I've got the shame of saying that I gave up after about a year uh, because I'd set up a coaching business or that was what my excuse was. Um, I then came, I returned to the UK, uh, stupidly started playing, broke my leg, didn't have much to do, uh, reapplied at university and was lucky enough to be accepted back at Manchester Met uh, to restudy my sports science undergraduate degree. Um, from there, I, 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 after the injury, I started to gain a bit of an interest in, in sort of rehabilitation and, and uh, S&C. So I was going to the gym and doing a lot of work on my own and reading as much as I could. Um, I was then really, really fortunate to be given uh, some time at Charlton Athletic, uh, working with Lawrence Bloom uh, and Jared and Josh there, uh, really just doing anything from from tidying up the gym to to picking up cones. I was probably the the world's oldest cone collector at that time. Um, but learned a hell of a lot. It was a season that was up and down. There was a lot of managerial changes and um, fortunately weren't relegated that year. So stayed in the championship. So I learned a real lot about being in, back in that environment on, on sort of the sports science side of things. Uh, from there, I left there at the, the end of that season and ended up uh, spending a season at Stevenage in the academy there. Uh, which was I probably realised then that maybe an academy role wasn't wasn't my forte as such, uh, and I'm really really lucky there that I left Stevenage um, and I got a phone call from from someone in Glasgow who said there was a role coming up at Celtic, uh, sort of the club I'd, I'd supported all my life through my family and uh, working with the women there, and I, th- I went up and I met uh, David Haley, the the manager there and uh, had a good chat and what we thought we could do and and how we could sort of drive things forward on on, on that side of things um and, and that was it I was there for a couple of years well nearly three seasons uh and that side really fortunate to get an insight uh sort of on the men's side with Brendan Rodgers and 
and also in the academy with Greg and Willie and uh, and Scott and everybody else up there. So I uh, was really, really fortunate in such a successful period in the, in the club's history. Um, I decided to leave there in May um, and a role came up at Exeter City. It all happened reasonably quickly. Uh, I came down here to Devon and I, I met uh, Matt Taylor, the, the manager. We had a a few discussions came down a couple of times and I decided to accept a role with the first team here at, at Exeter City, which is, has brought me down here to the southwest. I would say sunny, but it's raining at the moment. <laughs> Everyone up north thinks it's sunny down there all the time. That's, that's our perception of it, I think. Um, which I, think I don't think it's entirely true. No, no. <laughs> so talk to us a little bit about the differences between the roles then, Andy. So obviously working... Uh, you mentioned the academy there. You mentioned female female football. You mentioned obviously now working at a first team, um, at a league league two club. So, what were the main differences you saw between the or felt between the roles? Uh, that's a good question. I, I, I think it's it's been a really good uh, educator for skill sets. Really, you've got different. You know, when you're working with younger players, uh, it's really about keeping them engaged and. And keeping things fun for them and, you know, trying to get your message across. Probably a little bit more so to the parents than the actual younger players. Uh, obviously, as they grow up and get a little bit older, you know, there's a lot of hormones flying around. And, and the players are starting to progress physically and you notice those differences. Uh, at first team level, you know, uh, you're trying to keep the, the players on the pitch. Uh, for the manager, you're supporting the, the management team uh, as opposed to development. So maybe the younger players in the first team that are still in that, you know, still developing, but really you're trying to uh, support the the management and uh, and progress things there. Um, with regards to the women, I think it was uh, it was brilliant for me. Uh, I was lucky to to have a couple of articles published uh, based on you know my work in in female football, especially around ACL and the menstrual cycle. It was something different. It was probably something I'd never considered but I would say I was lucky I hit it at the right time with the the, the huge uh, drive in women's football especially in England and, and Scotland too they've qualified now for the for the World Cup next year so I think they're actually in England's group so that'll be decent um, but that was a real challenge and and something that I really really enjoyed uh, I really enjoyed working with the players what what was different was uh as opposed to some clubs in England, I think now the WSL one is all full time. Uh, but most of the players at Celtic, all of the players at Celtic, were part time, so they all had jobs or or were studying, or some actually still in school. Uh, so that really, you know, gave me a really good skill set on managing sort of load and and working with those players to get the best out of them physically, whilst considering everything else going on in their life, and maybe arguably a little bit more important with with school and work and exams. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and uh, how's that? Obviously, with with the your current role now, full time in in a League Two uh, men's environment, how does that differ to that? Uh, well, obviously, I mean the biggest difference is the, the full time players. Uh, you know, it makes a huge difference being in every day and uh, working with those players on a on a daily basis, as opposed to a couple of times a, a week. Um, I also look after the, the the physical development of the under twenty threes at Exeter, so I've got quite a broad role from you know those players that are developing summer out on loan, uh, and obviously the first team players 
it's quite varied because we've got some players that that played four and four hundred fifty five hundred league games. Uh, so they're at sort of the other end of the spectrum. And we've got the other ones that are being brought through. Uh, the academy down here at Exeter is is excellent, and the staff do a great job there. So by the time they're sort of handed on to me, they they really have a good uh, physical background. Uh, again, going back to the other end of that spectrum, you've got players where maybe SNC and sports science wasn't as prevalent. So with those players, you're you're looking to to educate them on a on a daily basis of why things are important and uh, and you know without being too intrusive. I think that's probably the worst thing you can do. Uh, you know the players. I I, I think buy-ins become really really trendy these days. But I think players are always on your side. I think they just have to understand why because ultimately as SSC sports scientists, all you know we're just helping them with their performance. We're supporting those players. So. Quite a varied role down here, but I think the main difference is that, you know, being full-time, you've probably got a little bit more contact time with those players and a little less remote, shall I say. Yeah, it was a big thing that uh, Josh down at Brighton spoke about on our recent network meeting was the relationship with players, but not only that, how he sort of learned across his career that you don't just go in and, and implement things from day one that players do have to understand why they do have to see the benefit you do have to relate to performance and, and what's going to happen on the pitch and that's where we saw he did see the buy-in after obviously going through experiences of initially not working as well as what he thought absolutely I, I think I mean I'm a little bit old. I, I, I'm ashamed to say I'll be 42 next month but uh, when I was studying, I was I was actually talking to one of my colleagues at Exeter yesterday, who's doing uh, sports science under the same undergrad as I did, uh, and we were talking about a certain lecturer who had a reputation of being quite harsh. Um, but one of the things I learned from him was that why make an intervention for intervention's sake? Uh, yeah. You know, and that was something I think in my webinar that I was uh, with yourselves, I was trying to get across that often we don't do ourselves any justice or any any real favours by just making an intervention when how do we know that's even correct or for that person you know some people may be resistant but if they understand why you're doing something and that takes time that that takes getting to know individuals personally you know there's a lot going on in you know players lives whether it be the part-time women's setup or the the men's setup you know, uh, there are a lot of things going on in a player's life, you know, with family and uh, and everything else that goes around that. So, you know, we're only a small part of their day, but we need to make sure that we make impact on that. And that really takes getting to understand your players and, and knowing what they will, maybe what they won't do. And with your experience, obviously, the, the vast experience that you've got working with a lot of different clubs and a lot of different players what would your advice be to like coaches, especially I'm thinking like young coaches that are going to come out of university and, and land in a, either an internship or if they're lucky enough, they'll go into a role with a club. They've got to then build these relationships with players. What, what would your advice be to those guys on how to develop those, relation, uh, develop those relationships? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question and probably one that it took me some time to learn personally. Uh, I always say, uh, you know, you can't see the picture if you're in the frame. So often you need to take yourself out of that from the whole sports science S&C box. Take yourself away from that and try and see things from a coach's perspective, but also the players. 
you know, some players will tell you they've not had great experiences with, you know, uh, other young coaches or people trying to implement stuff on them, you know, um, that maybe, you know, going back to that intervention for intervention's sake. Uh, so really try and see things from from other perspectives. And it takes time. It takes a lot of time to do that. And I suppose it's a bit of a skill set as well, being able to sort of zoom out and then zoom in and, and do what's right for the player. I think fundamentally we support the coaches and we support the players. So we must do what's right for both of those. And rather than what we've seen in research or what we, you know, the latest trendy thing is maybe in a research perspective or, you know, on Instagram or something like that, yeah, we need yeah. to look at it, take ourselves away collect our data, collect our information, understand that person and then look to to improve them. That's what we are looking to do. I think Tony Strudwick said it a few times, how far we may have moved away from, from what we're there to do and that's improve the players and support the coaches. Yeah, definitely. So you just touched a little bit before on um, on the webinar that you did for... Um, what that was about and some of the stuff that you went into on that yeah sure uh, it's such a broad area I think I said to Alan uh, there that you know you open up a Pandora's box at times because it's such a big area recovery um, my whole thing is you know and I'm sure you know it's not a new thing most people will understand that the quicker we get the players recovered you know the more time coaches have with them they'll be on the pitch and hopefully injury free but it's not that simple uh, through observation over the and I and I'll be honest, I have been guilty of doing it myself. Maybe when I was a little bit uh, younger in my career, but you know, you, it goes back to again to intervention for intervention's sake. Great, let's put them in an ice bath. Uh, you know, after a training session, okay, uh, that player might actually tell you that they don't enjoy that. So why are we forcing someone? Uh, Darren Burgess at Arsenal was saying that ultimately, when we're recovering pl- players, they've had stress applied. We're trying to pull that back to get them to go again. In this day and age, you know, if you walk up to a player and say, get off your phone when they're on whatever they're doing on their phone, that's adding to that stress. So the whole idea of the of the, the webinar there was to say, let's try and look at it from a broader perspective and let's not rush into making interventions um, within recovery. So within the webinar there, I looked at sleep and nutrition. I think they're the two big rocks they're not the only two big rocks but they're certainly two that you can have a a good impact in uh i think with nutrition often at times we tend to just throw shakes in front of people and say there you go there's your recovery without actually looking why that might be important so it's a bit of a double-edged sword that if you're looking for adaptation is that the best thing you know and then the nutrition side i looked at sort of the traffic light system there or saying okay this is your high intensity day you're going to require more fuel you, uh, more recovery when you've got maybe on a match day plus two which probably isn't your higher intensity day you probably don't need to be consuming as much and actually you, there's probably not much to recover from uh, and almost periodizing that recovery which uh, I heard Robin Thorpe talk about that recently and I think it's very very important that we apply the right things at the right time rather than just pushing something in someone's way and saying there you go have that you know, and also listening to the player. You know, we, I, I think I used the example there of uh, the evidence around ice baths can be up and down or cold water immersion. They can be up or down. But if a, fundamentally, if a player says to me, I feel recovered and ready to go after that, 
I don't think I'm going to stop them. Well, actually, it's not nothing to think about. I'm not going to stop them. Yeah, yeah, because that's massive, isn't it? Because it, even if, like you say, it's it's kind of like the placebo effect, I suppose, isn't it? That if it's in their mind that they're recovered and they're ready to go again, then that's could arguably more powerful than you putting in some recovery protocol that they don't fully buy into and then they sort of question it in the mind whether they are physically ready and that could be a big red flag in terms of their mindset going into a game absolutely and I think you kind of have to look at as long as it's not putting someone in danger or harming them then you know be open-minded and say okay if that's what that player wants or that's what they feel uh, recovers them quicker then you know that's that's good enough I think you know, you can't have people doing 101 different things because that can be pretty difficult to manage. I think when you have those opportunities, they're the time you can really start to to educate the player. You know, you're not going to say, well, the research says, you know, for and against this. Uh, I think you can educate them and say, you know, on this day, it may be better. They may still do it. You know, they may still do it on the day that you're telling them might not be optimal, shall we say, but again, if that's what they've done and that's what they feel uh, they need to do, then I don't think we should be putting our hands up and red flagging them within reason. Yeah. And it's a, a lot of it will be habit, like you said before, about working with some players that have, I'm guessing you've got some 30-odd-year-old players that have been in the game for quite a few years now and they've probably done something quite regularly as like a habit, maybe it's before games, maybe it's after games. And to change habits, not just in players, but in people in general, is, is pretty tough, isn't it? So I imagine with the older players that have done something for a long period of time, it's it's very tough to get new things or to educate them on the benefits of something new. Absolutely. I think uh, that relates quite well to nutrition. So players I've worked with on the nutritional side of things, be it adaptation or recovery or whatever we're looking for or whatever the performance goal is could be body composition it could be they might need to add a little bit um i think you'll see that habitual side if you collect enough information uh i actually use nutritics but you know my fitness pal and and, and other tool or even pen and paper are good ways to try and quantify that i think that then comes down to the player understanding why that's being done rather than just saying right i want you to record everything and in my experience, you will see trends. You know, you will see different trends on on, on, on those people's uh, habits and patterns. And and then you start to educate the player and say, look, you know, rather than a McDonald's milkshake, and I'm, I'm not saying anyone's done that, I'm using that purely for an example, uh, as a recovery. Yeah, do you know what? You know, McDonald's, there's maybe some, you know, for glycogen replenishment post-game, but you're looking at it from a cultural and habitual side, maybe it's better to try and educate them that, okay, let's let's go for our protein and carbohydrate uh, supplements maybe or, 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 or meals that are provided afterwards because gradually you're getting into those habits and, and, and trying to change them. But I don't think it's as easy as yeah. doing that straight away. Yeah, no, definitely, because that's that's what we spoke about before, isn't it? As well, it's like taking a, a new program into a into a club and trying to implement it straight away. It's not always going to be as easy as that, is it? No, no, and you know, uh, you you'll hear about resistance and people being resistance. 
resistant to programs or nutrition or whatever you're looking to do, well, actually, I, I probably think you need to, you know, we need to look back at that and say, well, why are they resistant? Is it because they don't understand? Is it because that person's never done it before? Ha- have their habits dictated what they do now and why they do it? And I, I think that's really where um, you need to get down to the nitty gritty and, and really understand that person. And in a team environment, when you've got a squad of 24, 25, that can take time. Yeah. So in your in your current role, Andy, yep. how... I'm, t- I'm guessing that you take control of all the recovery side of it. Um, we were, you were joking before about the, the jobs that you have to do at the club, but I'm, I'm guessing that is part of your role. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I'm only in the role for six months. Uh, I work closely with uh, the head of sports medicine, uh, A.D. Saunderson, and, and we're always having that discussion uh, as what we can do to help the players recover. Um, we haven't actually implemented anything that's outstanding uh just basic advice we we've used certain little infographics and and having conversations with players ultimately the player will tell you how they feel uh, and then we start to broaden our horizons and see if that needs intervention or or does that need you know just general advice so we haven't done anything that's you know the wow factor uh we've looked obviously we've We've a really, and I think I touched on it at a webinar. We've a really heavy schedule over over Christmas. Um, one of our games is not taking place now, by the way, because of the FA Cup, uh, or our, our opponents being still in the FA Cup. So we look back at that maybe a couple of months ago and thought, right, what can we use in that period, or what can we implement, or what strategies or what protocols can we edu- firstly educate the players on, speak to the coaches and see what we can do to get those players recovered and through that period safely. And, and at that time of year as well, I know this is obviously the first point that you're going through a festive period um, at your current club, but you've been through it before at other clubs. How, how do you find managing the players when, because um, obviously Christmas is a time of year for a lot of people that spend it with families and Players will get taken away from the family a lot of the time, and especially if they're away, they might have long trips. How do you find that balance with players? Yeah, I think, you know, you talk to the players on a daily basis and you find out how they're feeling. And uh, generally, I think most of the guys have been in the game quite some time, so we're quite used to it. Um, I think we just we get on with it, really. I know in the back of everyone's mind, you know, it's Christmas. But if you're involved in, in football and professional football, you know, Christmas is out the window, unless you get all the fixtures called off. <laughs> but no, I think we just get on with it. And, you know, it's, it's like a family environment. And, you know, I'm with these guys and all the staff and all the players for 35, you know, 40 weeks a year. Uh, probably more than that, actually. Um, so... You know, you just get on with it and you have that family spirit and I'm sure the lads will bring me in a Christmas dinner on Christmas Day. I'm not sure. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, we. I think a few of us spoke about it. You know, I'm always interested with the players and, you know, a lot of them got young kids and how they see Christmas and, you know, are they looking forward to it? Because I think they're good conversations to have Yeah. without, without being intrusive on someone's personal life. No, of course. It's just a, it's a very big factor, isn't it? Just for any sort of person, never mind it, uh, never mind just players. But I think it's um, it's just trying to find the right balance, I suppose. Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. And that, I think yeah, you have to respect the recovery of the players. You know, obviously the, the coaches will want training time and, you know, it's a technical, tactical sport. The physical toll of that will be huge. And that is us, you know, Exeter, we're, we're a good distance from most places. Uh, but it's the same for any other club. I was talking to my dad uh, the other day and, you know, it doesn't matter if you watch the Pep Guardiola documentary on Amazon, you know, players are still tired. They have to do a lot of, a lot of travel with you in the Champions League. I remember Celtic playing away uh, in Kazakhstan, possibly uh, in the Champions League qualifier. And then they had to come back and play a game around lunchtime on the Saturday. So, you know, arriving back at 4am on a Thursday, you've then got to go and play that game. So it's the same anywhere you go and you, you have to respect that. And I think that comes back to understanding what the players want, what they need and what the culture of the club is. Yeah, and I suppose it's always being adaptable and flexible with your approach, isn't it, as well? And just seeing what you can give to the player in that situation because that programme's always going to have to change, isn't it, depending on the situation, like you say, with games being called off um, or, or long travel and all the rest of it. Like that's, It's always going to have to change. Absolutely. I think you always plan for things. Uh, that will always change. The plan will always change. We always talk about periodization in 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 football it changes from a daily basis i would say i would go down to that you know almost on a daily basis depending on the players and the recovery status of those players uh, and you have to be flexible you know you have to be able to adapt to that uh, and again that comes down to to building that understanding of how the coaches work what the coach's intention is so what you know what are they intending for the session what is the outcome they're looking for and then sitting down discussing it and ultimately doing what's best for the player or players. Yeah. And it, um, at the seminar I went to recently, training ground guru, Simon Austin, he had Richard Evans there, who's yep. working under Martinez at Belgium. And he was talking about how they were preparing for the World Cup and how um, they were pinpointing players that they could go a little bit higher intensity in between games. But then they also had to obviously monitor that on a pretty much a day-to-day basis with injuries and fatigue and all the rest of it. So he was talking about the importance of um, the cohesion between the coaching team and and how they always had to they had to sit down every single day and discuss all the different factors in terms of the technical, uh, tactical, physical side. So how does that work practically for you? Is it is it obviously their period's a lot more of an intense period across a tournament like that, but yours is throughout a season. But um, like... Is that something that you guys do? You get in, in regular meetings with the manager and all the staff that, you, that need to be in there and decide how the programme needs to be adapted? Yeah, uh, every day uh, we'll have that discussion. Uh, the manager uh, has a really, really good... Uh, I think he's, he's got a master's in, in coaching science. So Matt Taylor, the manager, has a, has a really good uh, understanding of the physical side. Uh, so we'll sit down and we'll just... Myself and AD, uh, Jess, the other physio... Uh, and the other coaches will sit down and we'll discuss, you know, what the training plan is. Uh, I think it's really important that we understand what the coaches want out of the session. Uh, we have our plans in mind. Again, we may adapt that. We may change that because there may be certain things they want to work on. Um, for example, some of the conditioning work may need to be scaled back. It might need to be pushed depending on the individual needs of the player. And I think that's really important. And, and one of the real challenges we have in a team sport is that essentially, you know, you've got your team, but you've got 
up to 24 individuals who all have different needs and everybody responding differently to, to a training uh, stimulus or stimuli. So uh, you have to be acutely aware of that and, and understand, you know, some players are incredibly tolerant of high loads uh, and some may be a little less tolerant. So you have to have that in the back of your mind. And just to move it on, Andy, you did a while back now. Um, it was actually a while back. You did the article for us on, on SAQ and speed yeah. development, which is, I think, still been our most popular blog post. I'm pretty sure it's up there anyway. And right. um, <laughs> which was essentially just state, stating facts a lot of it, wasn't it? <laughs> it was, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> went really, really well. Do you want to just touch on that? But then also just go into how you... Um, go about developing speed with your guys now? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, I think what the article is about is that speed in, in commas, ladders, uh, they don't really, uh, you know, develop speed uh, and using sort of the Newtonian laws of motion and, that, and how that works in exerting a force. Uh, great, you know, neural preparation, neural drive. I've never hidden away from that fact. You know, great for getting the heart rate up. I think from a speed perspective, it's slightly different. Uh, one of the main reasons is people put their head down while they're going through the ladders. And, and there's, there's a variety of different reasons. Um, again, you know, we know that the, the game has got a lot quicker recently in recent years. Um, and that, again, I won't go into that, but that could be a variety of different reasons as well. So I think it was uh, Stu McMillan at Altis who said that, you know, when you're developing acceleration and, and bear in mind, they work with predominantly track athletes, you have to know the rules before you can break them. Uh, so sometimes, you know, we see, I've seen a lot of Paul Kohlbeck's work and I think it's brilliant on the contextual sprinting. Uh, again, working with the players do know they, they know how to uh, exert force in, you know, correctly and in the right uh, force vector, the right direction and efficiently. So break that down into its component parts. Do we need to work on that? Do we need to work on that acceleration component? Those sort of those first three steps, um, driving into the floor and stiff through the ankles, uh, before we start to implement some of the the curve sprinting and the different kind of things that I think Paul's done, you know, uh, some great work on, and certainly you guys as well have been uh, brilliant in promoting that. So my view on that, when working with the players, is where are they at? Again, it comes down to some that would be relatively novice in that kind of thing. Some that have been exposed to it before. Some who have sort of been in and around and have had it before. So a lot of resisted sprinting work um, and then assessing it from there. And also their gym work, which which complements it. You know, a conversation I had yesterday is, you know, you, people, I, I suppose sometimes we think that, you know, something in the gym is specific or it's it, you know we are transferring but not in the way of doing something like a change of direction in a sprint which is far more applicable yeah if that makes sense yeah definitely so how how do you go about that um practically with your players now like how would they just do it within sessions outside how many how many times are they um trying to doing wet, like strength sessions in the gym um, per week? How, how are they going about it? Yeah, so uh, the majority of players will do two to three times in a week. Again, that depends on fixtures uh, because it's pretty common in this league to play Saturday, Tuesday. 
Um, but the players have been brilliant, uh, you know, working in the gym and, and getting used to it. Again, it may have been something that they've not been used to with new players coming in uh, from other clubs. Um, and then we'll work on sort of resisting, resisting acceleration. That's something that we've, we've started to put in uh, mechanics and assessing where someone is. Uh, we try and expose them uh, to as much high-speed running as we can in the, 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 the beginning of the week or towards their, their, their day off. And then we also try and get them to hit their peak speed as well. So we look at it sort of going from a long to short approach as we come towards a game. And, and is that affected at all by the sort of playing style that the manager wants to adopt? Is that anything that you discuss with him and that, like, have you had to adapt your programme to that in any way? Yeah, of course. You know, the manager or I think in the forces, they call it the commander's intent. And uh, what he wants and what his game model and what he sees is probably the, the most important thing. And then everything works around that. So uh, the way the game is played or the way he views the game, you know, working on that acceleration over those, you know, 10, 5, 10 metres is, is incredibly important. So uh, discussions I've had with the manager is more or less why we're doing this. And he's been really, really good with that. Awesome. Awesome. That's really good. Really good insight. Andy, I know you're really busy, so I don't want to take up too much of your time. Time, so I really appreciate you um, you coming on and discussing what you've discussed so far, and I'd be keen to get you on again if you're up for it, just to go into more detail on different things. But just before you go, just um, is there anywhere that the guys can get in touch in in terms of like social media, um, and then also I saw that you you got a podcast as well. I have, yeah. Uh, I'm hoping to record the first one, but again, I, I've not had time. But that's that's just I'm a lot of the pressure on you there. What's that? Have I just piled the pressure on you there? Nah, we'll just be <laughs> rivals. Uh, no, the reason I set up the podcast, I'd actually done it about five years ago. Um, and I think I recorded a couple of episodes and, you know, became a little bit busier. But I was thinking, you know, one of the areas I see is that translation from science to practice. Uh, and that tends to be, I think there's a bit of a vacuum there at times. Um, so the goal, the overall goal behind the, the, the podcast, the Soccerology podcast is to try and bring practitioners on that have, have been there and done it and have worked at, at different levels within the, the professional game and, and some other sports, uh, I've got lined up, uh, to, you know, to almost give information on, on how they've applied things, um, because it's very easy to take a paper and say, right, I'm going to do that. But then again, and I think we touched on it earlier, the practical application is the biggest challenge. So yeah. I'm hoping to launch that in the next few weeks. Um, I've got a couple of people lined up to speak to um, and we'll see how it goes. Uh, but the, the main probably port of call, if, you, if someone wants to get in touch, is, is just my Twitter handle, at Mr. YZ Man. Um, just you know, send us a tweet there, and I'll be happy to answer as many questions as possible. Real and the podcast, mate. Is that going to be on iTunes? Yeah, I'm just waiting for the verification or whatever you call it. All the technical people will know that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's going to be on iTunes. Um, as I say, I'm not sure. I've not got any sort of launch date or anything, but given the workload and everything else, I'm going to try and keep it monthly. So just one a month and I've got a few practitioners who've been 
really, really good in, in, in giving me their time. So I'll get recording those and then get them up monthly. Uh, I'm hoping to get one out before Christmas. Awesome. Well, I'll definitely be giving that a listen, mate. So I, I look forward to uh, seeing who you've got on it and the information you've put out. But, so that sounds great. Um, but massive thanks again for coming on. Um, you've done some top stuff for us, like previously and recently as well with the webinar and the, all the speed stuff you did for us so I really appreciate everything you've done so far and um, wish you all the best for the rest of the season uh, Thanks very much Ben I, I, you know, keep up the good work that you and Alan are doing uh, I keep an eye on it and the, the conferences that you put on I hope that I can get to one soon um, I couldn't get to the last one but I think you're doing some brilliant work and, and, and keep it up it's, it's really really good and informative for people and you know one of my main things is being able to you know like you guys get that information across and get it out to people that you know there's a lot of people I, I feel very very grateful that you know I work in a job that I enjoy and actually there's very few jobs in professional football in SSC and sports science I'm in an incredibly privileged position and I think it's really, really good to try and give something back. And uh, and that's what you guys are doing brilliantly. So so keep that up. Thanks, Thanks a lot, mate. Well, uh, really appreciate it, Andy. I'll, uh, I'll catch you soon. No problem. Cheers, bye. Bye. Big thank you to Andy for coming onto the podcast. You can go and follow Andy on Twitter at Mr. Wiseyman. Um, and he puts out loads of great content, loads of research, and, and also loads of the work he's doing um, previously at Celtic, but also at Exeter at the moment. You can also check out his podcast. He just released a podcast, which we referred to in the episode called Soccerology. I've listened to the first one with Fergus Connolly, and it was a great, uh, really great episode. So I really do recommend to go and listen to that. And I think some of my biggest takeaways from the episode were where Andy talked about why make an intervention for intervention's sake. I think that's um, quite a key phrase for coaches to sort of get their head around and understand. And also how he deals with players, so how that sort of transitions throughout his career, whereas he might have acted differently um, a few years ago and, and he's grown as a coach to sort of understand the players and understand the uh, decisions they're making and what they're wanting to do on a daily basis. So that was really key and critical for me. You can also go out, uh, go and check out Andy's recovery webinar on our community. Um, Andy's done a great webinar covering all aspects of recovery that's available on the community. If you go onto the website, footballfitfed.com, uh, football and click on the community tab at the top, that'll take you through to the community. The community is £4.99 a month, but you do get the first month free. And there are other webinars on there. Um, from some top coaches as well but Andy's Andy's is available on there and also the blog that we mentioned that Andy had done previously for us on speed that's available on our website Um, again same website just click on the blog tab at the top and that'll take you through and if you have a flick through you'll be able to find Andy's blog on there and once again massive thank you for listening to the episode the numbers are now growing of the people listening to the podcast. So massive thank you to anyone that shared the show. But please do share it with friends, family, colleagues, anyone who you may think will benefit from the information that we're putting out there. Um, and we're looking forward to bringing you more quality guests. So we will see you and speak to you next week.